Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Sabah al-khair. Good morning, dear listeners. You're listening to Radio 3CR on 855 AM and Palestine Remembered with Yusuf Ahmed al-Rimawi, Nasser Mashni and Roberto Martinez. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of Australia's only radio program that is totally dedicated to the Palestinian cause in English language. And I would like to welcome my listeners on the AM dial and those who will join us later on the podcast on 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, uh, Nasser and Robert. Morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Now, we cannot start without, again, revisiting the open wound that is the mass hunger strike of the Palestinian prisoners. And it's the 40th day. Uh, Today marks the 40th day of an open mass hunger strike uh, in protest of the inhumane treatment uh, by Israel. I, I uh, so I was going to say, I haven't seen it in any newspaper locally, reported mm. anywhere, spoken anywhere locally about it either, which I find... Uh, I mean, the crazy thing is 1,500 humans hunger striking for, you know, simple rights, you would think would, would warrant a byline in one of, our, uh, one of our medias. Especially the fact that Trump's over there. There's a lot of media on the place, but nothing to do with, with what's going on. Terrible. Total media blackout when it comes to the Palestinian uh, issues. And we have to, again, I want to retouch on the medical negligence uh, that Israel systematically uh, practices against the Palestinian prisoners. And I also want to give the same example for uh, the Palestinian prisoner, uh, the uh, 15-year-old girl who was taken 18 months ago to prison with a broken arm and is yet to be treated. Just imagine it was your Just daughter. one example of medical negligence. That her name is Marah Bakir. So uh, th- again, uh, we fully support their demands and uh, we hope uh, one day we will see them uh, free. Just a quick reminder also, it's for a telephone call, having a telephone within mm. the, uh, the system, the jail system. Access mm. to family, not movement of uh, the prisoners from, from Palestine into, into 48 or Israel. Books. Books, rights, education. education. I mean, just beggars belief that uh, 40 days in, 1,500 prisoners, many of them held in administrative detention without charge, without trial, having signed confessions in a language they don't understand after torture, Mm. being stripped of their uh, rights, torn out of their homes at 2 o'clock in the morning. And we have to say also that uh, over the last 40 days, none of them uh, has been able to see uh, his lawyer. Complete isolation. No, and there is no form of contact between their lawyers, let alone their family members, and nobody knows what's happening. And I can tell you, the way they try to break their uh, hunger strike uh, is by non 
ending harassment and deprivation of sleep and putting the majority of them in loud music, uh, uh, loud music dip, uh, and, and in solitary confinement. Well, it's just a matter of time before at least one, but I'd be surprised if it was only one actually die because the human body cannot sustain this sort of abuse. Look, we're, we're fast approaching that point where permanent medical damage is going to occur. At 40 days, I mean, uh, hunger strikes historically have been a, a form of non-violent resistance, you know, right through in the parallels to the IRA and Bobby Sands, etc. in um, in British jails. Uh, you know, people start dying in around around the 45 to 50 day mark, which is, you know, mm. we're, we're talking a week and a bit away. A few days away. And uh, and by the way, today marks the beginning of the fasting month for Muslims, uh, Ramadan. And I uh, always uh, hear my friends and uh, some of my relatives uh, complaining about not eating uh, for eight or nine hours, let alone days. So it, it'll put it in perspective, might it, over the next, uh, over the next month? But happy Ramadan to all our Muslim uh, listeners. Nasser, uh, I believe uh, we have a few questions sent to us by one of our dear listeners. Yep. So um, we, we, we often get questions, but uh, I think this was an opportunity because post our Nakba series, a uh, couple of shows, we had a um, some questions texted to us by Ray. Um, and what I might do is uh, ask Robert and yourself, Yusuf, to, to give some content, some questions. We'll say hello to Ray and thanks for the question. Absolutely. Thank you, Ray. So one of his first questions is, could Nakba have been prevented? If so, how and why wasn't it? Um, yes. Well, Actually, Nakba should have been prevented. And Nakba wouldn't have happened without the uh, complicity of Britain, without the passive complicity of the Arab regimes. I don't want to accuse all of the Arabs to comply, to, to, basic, to be complicits with the Zionists in creation of Israel in '48. Uh, I would say uh, the United Nations also, the newly born uh, UN body, was, uh, which was formed in, after the World War II, uh, also played a negative role and they were complicits. And of course, if you go in history and read about the countries that voted for or in favor for the partitioning of Palestine, and you see how the Americans and the, how, how the Zionist money bribed people to vote in favor, you will know that things like this wouldn't have happened anyway, mm-hmm. and people wouldn't have just voted for Israel anyway if there was a fair go. There was no fair go, and Israeli, Australia actually voted for the creation mm-hmm. of Israel and for the partitioning of Palestine. And if you even go to the archives of Australia and you'll see the political debate about this issue, you will know that it was huge, and it was not just an, 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 uh, an easy decision to make And you will know that something like this attracted so much interest of the superpower back then uh, would have been impossible to attract if it was just another random topic. Mm -mm. Um, Also from Palestinian point of view, I would say that the Palestinian society, um, I mean, it's fair to say, it's fair to say that in, 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 in parts of it, we were we were we were against the um, uh, unlimited uh, Jewish migration in the twentieth sorry in the twenties thirties and forties and there were revolutions and strikes including the longest strike in the twentieth century in the region um, the Grand Revolution in thirty six 
However, we could not stop the um, the British policy to open basically the borders uh, for uh, for the European migration to Palestine. Uh, but I would say that um, there are a long list of things that the Palestinians could have done better. Um, but we can't. We, we we didn't see that happening because what happened was just bigger than the imagination. I think it's also time for the world to stop the Nakba now, because as we know, we discussed over the last few weeks, it's continuing. Mm. But still, the world is aware, but is not doing enough. So it's up to all of us, the governments and the people, to start saying, you know, enough is enough. Excellent point. Never uh, again. Excellent point. Never again. Never again. Excellent point, uh, Robert, because Nakba isn't a tsunami that hit our region and now we're living in the reconstruction uh, stage. Nakba is, is still happening. And the best response to uh, uh, to that is to stop Nakba by ending the occupation immediately and by acknowledging the Palestinian side of return. Absolutely. Well, I mean, we should remember that uh, Israel's... Uh admission into the UN was predicated on full compliance with 194, which was the, the right of Palestinian refugees to return to their homes or be compensated uh, if they chose. Mm. Has it been fulfilled? Zero. But Israel's still in the UN uh, illegally. So um, going on from that, uh, the question then is, ethnic cleansing oh. from the start, did anyone see the fact that ethnic cleansing was coming? Was the West naive? And is this uh, the first example of an ethnic cleanse in modern history? I would say that the first ethnic cleansing uh, of the Palestinian society happened in the 30s in the Galil, uh, the uh, Marj ibn Amr uh, region in the Galili. And uh, the Palestinians uh, saw the price of, uh, of, of starting uh, or building new Jewish colonies back then. Uh, and they tried to resist uh, with the very little means they had back then. But if you compare how the British forces dealt with Palestinian resistance with how they dealt with the Jewish violence, and you would see the disproportionate and the one-sided uh, approach, and there was crushing any form of resistance to the extent of chasing individuals and going after their own families. And home demolitions, by the way, yeah, started absolutely. home demolitions started under the British, under British mandate as a punishment of resistance. of resistance. And yeah. if you compare that to how lenient and how flexible and how understanding they were towards the Jewish uh, uh, violent and uh, militant well, Jew groups. Jewish terrorism. I mean, we've got Jewish to remember terrorism. that at that time when, when, when the Palestinians were resisting, the, the Zionists were too, mm. to the point where they were murdering British officers and then booby-trapping the British officers' bodies so as to inflict more terror and pain on the British when they came to re yeah. reclaim their comrades' bodies. But how did Britain deal with that? Disproportionate. Uh, with, with, a soft, with a glove. With a glove. And, of course, the result was more, more ethnic cleansing. And, of course, the peak of it started after the partitioning of Palestine in forty-seven and onwards. Do, do you think the media had something to do with it back then? Was it as... I know the media wasn't like it is today, but people were aware of what was well, going on. I don't, I don't think local media, you mean, or international media? International, or starting yeah. local mm. to go. It, to it wasn't that. What it was, uh, um, the media wasn't as omnipotent as it was today. And the media at the time was significantly more challenging of uh, the ruling powers, as opposed to being an advocate or a trumpet piece for media, uh, for the So people were the aware. They were aware. And, and, and there wasn't like overwhelming support for Zionist claim no. to Palestine. So how did it continue? Well, it continued because of the power of the Zionist lobby. And, and it continued from the point of view of, you know, getting the Balfour Declaration done, 
continued from the mm-hmm. point of view of ultimately Britain ceding the mandate of um, Palestine and then abstaining into <coughs> the UN, abstaining from the vote. It, it, it continued because the, the Zionist lobby within America sent hundreds of thousands of postcards to President yeah. Truman to get him to change his mind. He At one point, he considered a binational solution, mm. you know, the ultimate solution, where everybody, regardless of uh, their religion, how you celebrate your God, when you might celebrate him or her, everybody's just a human being. Equality. Yeah. Have- But it's the Zionist lobby, like Nasser said. The Zionist lobby. And also uh, the fact that the Arab regimes or the Arab countries were either under Western uh, control or still still evolving. You're talking about 400 years plus of Turkish rule of the Arab world and then followed by the defeat of Turkey and the uh, distribution of the Turkish legacy to France and Britain. And we're talking about newly born countries that didn't have the vision or didn't have the means to implement the visions or to stop that from happening. And what was left is uh, uh, the elite society who could say, I would actually give credit to... Uh, a Christian Lebanese uh, intellectual who saw Zionism happening and who wrote in 1907 wow. a piece to an Arabic-speaking magazine in Paris. Uh, I'll have to uh, mention his name uh, in a future episode. I just yeah. can't recall him. And it's the elites who saw that happening. Yeah, yeah. And the elite, uh, the academics, there, even religious mm-hmm. leaders didn't have way to impose, or I wouldn't say impose, to reinforce their yeah, vision. Or to educate. Or I mean, to the reality educate. is we're talking about, you know, uh, post-Ottoman era, 400 years of subjugation occupation by the Ottoman uh, Empire. The Arabs who fought with the Allies for independence against the Ottomans and the Germans, who were promised independence, and the Palestinians in particular, that we're, we're an unsophisticated tribal farming uh, mm. peasant community dealing against... Um, The, the the sophistication and the money and the power and the influence of the Zionist lobby in the in the West, and then you're saying, you know, when you put it as binarily as so, these people from that neighbourhood are going to come and take your house. To the lay human being, as unsophisticated as you might be, or as sophisticated as you might be, they'll go, "Now no. this, this is not going to happen." Mm. And so it all sort of happened. And and you know, the, whether you are an Arab on the streets in what is now Iraq or Syria or Egypt. Or, Jordan or a Palestinian within Palestine, you're like, no, this can't be right. Can't be Surely it's not going to be right. Especially naively. We're talking about 50, uh, a 50-year 50 uh, time span from 1897 to 1947. Yeah. This is the makeup of Israel. And across this half a century, what people, when, when you live through that, is completely different to seeing to going back and looking at it from history. Well, it's not a comparison, yeah. is it? And we, we, now we see, okay, uh, there's the partitioning, there's the British mandate, there's the Nakba, and there's the Nexa, mm-hmm. because you understand it when you look backward. Yeah, yeah. But when you live forward, you don't understand, because you only yeah. have enough information based on... What you see in your village what you around you, your what your family told you. you. Yeah. Especially back then. And, um, mm. and, and the steps towards the creation of Israel varied from one year to another. Yeah. Um, so th- thanks very much, Ray, and uh, continue to listen. And for our other listeners, please, we'd love to hear uh, from you. We get look, we get a lot of questions, but um, they were a couple of topical ones we thought we, we'd address. But feel f- too. yeah, feel Time free in. to text us on zero four three seven nine nine zero four one five zero four three seven nine nine zero four one five. 
So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a, a document written at the time of the uh, uh, Constitution of the United Nations, and there are many different rights, but there are 10 human rights, and what I want to do is list um, uh, 10 of them, and uh, nine of these human rights are being violated by Israel. And what I want to do is, you know, Robert, Yusuf, you're both very um, very uh, passionate about Palestine. I want you to tell me the one human right in this list of 10 that is not being violated by Israel. I'll do my best. Okay. Number one, the right to equality. Number two, the right to equality before the law. Number three, the right to life, liberty, personal security. Number four, freedom from torture and degrading treatment. Number five, the right to remedy by competent tribunal. Number six, freedom from arbitrary arrest and exile. Number seven, right to free movement in and out of the country. Number eight, right to marriage and family. Number nine, right to own property. Number ten, right of peaceful assembly and association. Well, guess what? I tricked you. Israel violates them all. I was was (laughs) going to say that, uh, well, it depends if you're Jewish or you're Palestinian. (laughs) Well, so the answer is none. None. So it violates all ten of those. Unless mm. you're Israeli? Well, unless you're a Jew. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, remember that yeah. you could, as an Israeli, you could be... A, so let's start by the first one. Yeah. So right to equality. And the answer is definitely inequality. Here we live in uh, a society where only Jews benefit from uh, a system. Uh, and if you are a non-Jewish holder of Israeli passport or citizenship, then you don't get uh, to access the same benefits, let alone uh, the belonging of a state. And of course, Israel created a difference between being citizen and being a national. And only experts in international law can address this properly. But you can you get to enjoy citizenship right if you hold passports, but you don't have the national rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, a very simple one. You spoke about it, Yusuf, before about your... Um your 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 sister and her uh, husband, mm. you know the right to um, uh, right to equality, the uh, right to return. I mean, a, a Jew from anywhere in the world can uh, perform aliyah, but any Palestinian anywhere in the world with the keys to their home can't return. Anyway, so that's number one ticked. Number one, number two, the right to equality before the law. Well, I mean that's that's obvious as well. If you if look, if you're a Jew, you get to face a normal court. If you're a Palestinian, it's a military court. And unfortunately, the military court has a conviction rate of 99.74%. Uh, and also, they have uh, the administration detention, mm. which they don't use for their own Administra- people. Ad- administrative yeah. detention. Administrative detention. Yeah. We, should, we should comment yeah. to that. That's Palestinians in the West Bank. So yeah. um, uh, arguably, a Palestinian inside Israel gets some, some form of uh, justice. Just, uh, just on that as well, there's, if, uh, for, for criminals that are convicted, if you're Jewish, you won't, your house won't get demolished. Mm-hmm. But if you're Palestinian... It will. And so there's many things further than just the courts uh, as part of that. So. We also have heard our politicians uh, protesting uh, or rejecting the negotiations between Australia and China uh, for, uh, what's the word, extradition? Extradition. Extradition. Uh, and uh, their uh, justification was that in China the conviction rate is very high. Yeah. It's 99%. And yeah, well, guess Ma- what? Was, Israel is even worse. <laughs> that was Michael Danby uh, um, protesting the the, um, uh, the the Australian government uh, uh, endorsing or endeavouring to put put in a policy of um, mutual extradition, saying, you know, we can't um, we can't sign that because if we send a citizen back to China, they're going to convict them at 99%. This is the minister for Israel, Michael Danby. Yeah? So that's number two. 
Number three, the right to life, liberty, personal security. Um, in the first 20 years, uh, the Arab uh, or the Palestinians who remained in Palestine uh, in proper Israel were under martial laws. They were not under the same civil rights and laws, meaning that um, if a Jew in Israel in the first 20 years um, commits a, a, an offense, then a police officer would deal with that. When an Arab uh, does the same thing, or even less than that, then it would go to a military court. Mm-hmm. And that's for the first 20 years of existence. I, I think a, uh, another clear one is that uh, the shoot-to-kill policy that they have against Palestinians. I mean, uh, yeah, the IDF, if someone's suspected of carrying a knife or looking suspicious, or in fact just looking Palestinian, mm. they'll get shot four, five, ten times. But if you're a, a Jew... You know, you'll get tackled to the ground. A 15-year-old girl allegedly holding a knife. I mean, I don't know why 20 soldiers have to shoot her. And how many bullets? They they emptied the magazine. Of course. And also I want to to highlight and to remind our listeners that Israel created um, four systems of law that affects all Palestinians. One against the Palestinians uh, in Israel, uh, or what they call the Arab Israelis where they are second or third class citizens. The second is affecting the Palestinians in West Bank, and they live under occupation, and we don't want to start that. We know what it means to be occupied. And the third one is a system of siege and embargo, imposing it on Gaza. The fourth one is on Jerusalem, and we will elaborate more on Jerusalem in future episodes, but it's not the same as being in uh, West Bank. Yeah. And the fifth one, denying the right of return to all Palestinian refugees. Freedom from torture and degrading treatment. You're well, talking about everyday life? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the well, degrading so that, treatment? Yeah. I mean, that's... Well, I mean, as we know, um, uh, what... what the Israeli security services do to Palestinian miners for stone throwing, you know, the, the forced... Confession, the um, the beatings, the humiliation, the degradation. You know, torture is a, a part of uh, everyday life for a Palestinian as soon as they're apprehended. In fact, their lives are tortured in, in, in the West Bank and Gaza. Even in, uh, in the imprisonment uh, process, uh, they um, when they arrest a Palestinian, it takes uh, from six to eight weeks until they actually uh, send them charges or even if, yeah. assuming that this is not an administra- administrative detention. In this six to eight weeks, we're talking about um, uh, a long list of violations mm. against human rights, starting from sleep deprivation, uh, beating, verbal abuse, um, tying, down, uh, tying them down to their chairs, and uh, the list goes on. And that's even before hearing their uh, answers to their accusations, if there is any. And remembering these are minors, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old. Just on the, on the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> the degrading. I mean, they degrade them as they're walking around the streets. What I is mean, more degrading the, than occupying a whole nation? Yeah. Well, they'll pull them up at the checkpoints. They'll make them wait. So it's not just when they're incarcerated. Yeah. Strip search men in front of their, their children yeah. and their wives. Yeah, break into the houses and, you know. Right to remedy by competent tribunal. And the most... Uh, glowing example of this is that today you know um residents palestinians of the west bank and gaza of west bank and gaza can actually file lawsuits in the state of israel there's actually legal remedy for them to do that but the 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 fact is that by denying entry for the plaintiffs to israel they can't actually get to court to prosecute 
their action, whether it's a, a claim for compensation or for wrongful death, etc. So uh, these lawsuits end up being thrown out on the technicality of plaintiff's absence. And that's obviously it, not a mistake. Even every, the conduct of uh, the court system in most of the cases, uh, the, um, the Palestinians who ended up in Israeli courts get to sign on uh, documents written in Hebrew without access to interpreters. Mm-hmm. The next one is freedom from arbitrary arrest and exile. Well, that sounds like a joke. <laughs> After 50 years, when you had 45% of the male population of West Bank ended up uh, at least once in their lifetime, in their lifetime uh, behind Israeli uh, jails. And when, when we're talking um, about 850,000 Palestinians being imprisoned since the occupation of West Bank and Gaza Strip, uh, and when we talk about the... Um, the systematic uh, brutality of occupation. I don't know how we should respond to that. I think we've already given it much more time than it needed. It's, uh, it's such a laughable one. So number seven, right to free movement in and out of the country. Well, I think Gaza might come to mind in that one. It's coming up to its 10 years where, you know, obviously people can't come in or out, but they're also stopping a lot of things like pencils, dexters, uh, food, all sorts of things from going in and out. Which let, is, let alone anybody that's pro-BDS trying to get into the West Bank or um, Israel proper. You can't that, even get in or out of Gaza. And I could be an example myself because I am from a village in West Bank that is our future Palestinian state, uh, which means that uh, according to the even their own uh, occupation laws, uh, I should be allowed to visit uh, Beit Rima near Ramallah. But nevertheless... Myself, my parents, my brothers have been denied uh, entry uh, to West Bank since its, its, its occupation. My father tried, myself tried a few times, and every time we try, we get our visa applications denied. Mm-mm. So number eight is the right to marriage and family. Well, my brother uh, is married to an Israeli Arab, and... Uh, they had to go through extra channels of processing compared to any other civil marriage in Israel just because he holds um, a Jordanian passport and just because they know that this person is a Palestinian of, of Palestinian origin. Mm. Though, so it's very complicated for a Palestinian in Israel to marry another Palestinian, from, whether from West Bank, from Gaza, from Jerusalem, or from Diaspora. It's nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. But it becomes even more difficult if it's from Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is subjected, and for the 50th year now uh, these days, to uh, a demographic cleansing and ethnic cleansing where the Arabs, whether Christians or Muslims, have to leave. And marriage, of course, is one of their, one of their tools. Well, they're so, demographic yeah. threat, aren't they, which I is mean, openly stated. Open, openly so. stated. So since 1998, Israel's not allowed the um, registration of a spouse to become uh, an Israeli citizen. Since 1998. So bar- about 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. They're barred family unification. And in a recent court statement, uh, a Supreme Court justice said, whilst the law proclaimed that a Palestinian citizen indeed had a constitutional right to uh, family unification, the exercise of that right in Israel is not part of the constitution. I think we should remind everybody what we're talking about, and that's Israel and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, I mean, I'm actually shocked at the things we're talking about here. I mean, it's a horrible subject that's continuing on in Israel today. And we've there's, got two more to go. There's a couple of more. Yeah, number two nine, the right to own property. 
Well, look, if you're Palestinian, you don't have that right at all. I mean, if you had a house that's taken from you, if you want an extension, you have to try and put a permit in, which you don't get. They can come and demolish your home at any time. Uh, they don't have that right. It's really, really simple. The essence of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict is land and ownership, and therefore Israelis know that very well, and that's why we had uh, the land day in uh, mm-hmm. Israel, and that's why we had land confiscation and property course, theft. Well, we know that's that. why they, have exp- uh, ex- they are expanding the settlements, so it's all about land. Yeah. So the right to own property in Israel is that Israel can take your land and own it and do what they want and expel you from it, mm-hmm. and you can't do anything about it. That's a unique reading of the right to own property. Mm. Wow. Good Zionist classes. There's Zionist classes. We need need the Zionist classes. Number 10 is the right of peaceful assembly and association. Well, I can tell you my experience, and that was in Berlin, when, uh, you know, they are actually peaceful protests, walking peacefully with children, mums, dads, uh, international activists and visitors, and you don't have to go far before they start shooting the tear gas at you and the tanks come down with their M16s. Uh, And Israel or the IDF say that, uh, you know, they're... Uh, breaking the peace. You're not allowed to do this. You can't have too many groups of people together. And so that's something that absolutely is non-existent in Israel. You do not have the right to a peaceful assembly and association. That is something you don't have. So Israel takes all the boxes the other way around. Instead yeah. of just complying with them, they are doing in the breach. breach. And they're in breach. And, and remember, this is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and it was written uh, post-World War II so that we would say never again. We'll put this as a link on our, on the podcast because anybody that uh, is pro-Israel or supports Israel has to really have a good look at these. If you're supporting a nation that treats people like this, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's disgusting, and unfortunately the world doesn't understand exactly what Israel's doing. We have read these out. It's against international law. Never again is something that has been said. Let's make that happen. Now, a reminder, listeners, uh, the 3CR Radiothon occurs on June 17. We'll be taking calls. Last year, we raised almost $2,000, and this year, we'll be aiming for $2,500. We'll be taking your calls and pledges live on the radio, so don't forget, 3CR Community Radio can only exist if we get your money. June 17, and that's all for this uh, show. Thanks, guys, for another great show, and we look forward to um, presenting to you again next Saturday. Happy Ramadan. Happy Happy Ramadan. Ramadan. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.